This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... So this is really the beginning of South Africa's efforts towards a just energy transition, where the social, the economic, and the political impacts of this transition are being dealt with. That's independent energy analyst Chris Yelland on plans to transform a decommissioned power station into a plant that uses renewable energy. Details coming up. Also, Ethiopia's federal government and Tigray's regional leaders are meeting to work on, on implementation of a peace deal. Funding for climate damage is under debate at COP27, and Americans vote in critical midterm elections tomorrow. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. World leaders and activists are gathered in Sham al-Sheikh, Egypt, for the COP27 climate summit. VOA's Heather Murdoch is following the conference and spoke with my colleague Kate Bond Dawson about the messages heard today. The main messages of today were of alarm. Many people spoke today of how urgent and alarming climate change has become, specifically in the past year alone. There's been unprecedented floods, fires, heat waves, storms. Um, many people have been killed by climate change-related disasters this year. So a lot of people spoke about this and spoke about previous conferences, which have laid the framework for not fixing the problem, but but slowing the problem, making it possible for the world to go on at a similar level of catastrophe that we're at now um, without getting much worse. Um, these frameworks were set in 2015 in Paris, and a lot of the rules of how to do it were established last year in Glasgow. So they spoke about these two conferences particularly. The problem is that all of these, um, all of this groundwork has yet to be implemented. So one of the main messages was also, this is the conference where we're going to talk about not what we need to do, not how we need to do it, but when it is going to get done and making it happen. What were some of the other major issues uh, that were being addressed today? Another main issue that for the first time has been brought formally into a UN climate conference is that of how wealthy nations should and will support poorer nations in terms of alleviating the suffering of climate disasters going forward. Um, this has long since been an issue. In uh, more than a decade ago, world leaders of wealthy nations said that they planned to, by 2020, raise $100 billion a year um, to support poor countries in the event of climate disasters. That goal has not even come close to being met. And they say, this year we're going to talk seriously about meeting that goal in future, even though the deadline that was originally set has already been passed. Um, so that has been formally brought into the talks and developing nations um, have, leaders have come to the conference um, with very strong goals in mind to hold the leaders of wealthy countries to account and say, this has to happen. It's no longer an option. Um, another issue that was brought up today that I think is important 
more more it's a more distant problem but it's a huge problem that will will happen and is already starting to happen which is climate migration al gore the climate activist and former vice president of the us talked today about future climate migration perhaps reaching a billion people by at the end of the century this is an unheard of amount of people on the move we have such problems in the world right now with uh, refugees and, and migrants and displaced people all over the world from wars economic crises and now climate crises but it's only going to get much worse that was VOA correspondent Heather Medak in Istanbul. She was speaking with VOA editor Kate Pondawson. During their conversation, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced a new fund to pay for warning systems around the world to alert communities to looming natural disasters. Guterres said even 24 hours of warning time for floods, hurricanes, and other disasters can reduce damage by 30%. For more on COP27, stay tuned to your favorite VOA Africa news programs and check out voaafrica.com. South Africa's delegation at the UN Climate Change Conference, known as COP27, which began yesterday in Egypt, are celebrating a World Bank-driven loan to kickstart their nation's journey to clean energy. South Africa relies on 15 massive coal-fired power stations to drive the continent's most industrialized economy, making it one of the world's worst air polluters and emitters of harmful greenhouse gases. The loan of almost $500 million will allow South Africa to transform a decommissioned power station into a plant that uses clean, renewable energy. Darren Taylor reports. Independent energy analyst Chris Yelland hailed the closure of the Komati power station in South Africa's northeastern Mpumalanga province as nothing but good news. Now this power station is over 60 years old. It is well past its end of life. It is non-compliant with environmental emissions, air pollution, water pollution, etc. And it is due for uh, decommissioning. So there's a lot of jobs at stake here. People that were employed in the power station as well as in coal mines that are feeding coal to this power station. So this is really the beginning of South Africa's efforts towards a just energy transition, where the social, the economic, the political impacts of this transition are being dealt with. A statement from the World Bank said workers at Komati would be offered jobs at other facilities belonging to National Electricity Regulator, ESCOM. Others would be trained to work in renewable energy plants using solar and wind. Yellen describes the Komati project as an experiment that could show other countries how to move away from burning fossil fuels for energy. Of course, there are going to be mistakes made along the way. I'm sure there's going to be a lot to learn from these mistakes. But it's really important because this is the first of many power stations that are going to be decommissioned in the next 15 years. So Eskom has announced that something like 11,000 megawatts are going to be decommissioned by 2030 and a further 11,000 megawatts by 2035. That is more than half of the existing coal fleet. He says it's crucial not just for South Africa but for the entire planet that the country stops burning coal for electricity. It's not 
only carbon emissions. Carbon emissions, of course, contribute to climate change. But there are other emissions that are also extremely dangerous, affect human health. And I give you an example, sulfur dioxide, SO2. South Africa has very high sulfur content coal. And our emissions of sulfur dioxide from our coal-fired power stations are amongst the highest in the world. For many decades, South Africans have suffered from conditions affecting their eyes, nose, throat and lungs. Conditions medical experts blame partly on sulfur dioxide. They say SO2 also causes inflammation and irritation of the respiratory system. Daniel Minele heads President Cyril Ramaphosa's Climate Finance Task Team. He says South Africa is going to need at least $84 billion just to fund its move to clean energy over the next five years. More funding will need to be raised and that will come from other sovereigns that have already indicated their willingness to support the South African transition journey from organizations such as philanthropies, but the bulk of it will come from domestic and international uh, private markets and the public funds will have to be deployed in such a manner that we can leverage these funds to bring in the much bigger pools that sit in the private sector. Minele says raising a big chunk of the funding needed to cut carbon emissions, harness economic opportunities from the energy transition and support affected communities will top South Africa's agenda at COP27. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Ethiopia's federal government and Tigray regional leaders began meeting in the Kenyan capital Nairobi today for talks on an African Union brokered peace deal signed last week in South Africa. The parties are discussing how to implement the agreement and get much-needed food and medical aid to areas cut off by two years of war. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi, Kenya. Ethiopian government representatives and the leadership of the Tigray People's Liberation Front are meeting to implement the peace agreement that has given Ethiopian civilians trapped in the conflict new hope. Former Nigerian President Olesegun Obasanjo and Uhuru Kenyatta, former Kenyan president, are chairing the talks. Tigray spokesperson Getachu Reda says implementing the peace agreement will create more opportunities for the country. There are a number of things that need to be done which are stipulated in our agreement. The provision of services is one thing. And the more services there are, the more confidence there is, the more communication there is, and the more hope and expectation uh, it instills in the, in the people's mind, and that will further consolidate the peace we are trying to uh, put in place. So, uh, like I said, we are committed to honor the, uh, the commitments we've made. The deal calls for an end to the two-year conflict and the delivery of humanitarian assistance to the people in the Tigray region. The Ethiopian government's lead negotiator, Redwan Hussein, said it is a priority to reconnect the Tigray community with the rest of the country. In the areas also where we have not access, we have to quickly reconnect services, both telecoms, energy, uh, and banking systems. But before that, the, our people need food first and medicine. And for that, we are trying to expedite. The, the war has displaced millions and killed tens of thousands more. The conflict has made it difficult for aid agencies to reach millions in the Tigray region with food and medical supplies. 
The agreement also calls for the TPLF to lay down its arms in exchange for reintegration and the return of the National Army to the region. Tigray representatives say they have made a painful concession to end the conflict. Obasanjo, the African Union's chief mediator, say the two sides have established a telephone hotline. The hotline will help them monitor the truce and communicate with their forces to stop fighting in case of flare-ups. Kenyatta, a co-mediator of the peace talks, says he expects the ongoing negotiations to end the civil war. At the conclusion of this process, will be colleagues who will be working together for the betterment of their country, for the betterment of Ethiopia, for the benefit of our region, and ultimately join us all in our struggle to make Africa a better place and to end and silence the guns permanently so that we can focus on the well-being of our people. The talks are expected to last three or four days. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. You're listening to Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. Americans, head to the polls tomorrow to vote in the country's midterm elections. I spoke with journalist and analyst Pearl Matimbi about the significance of the elections, especially on issues that could be of interest to Africa. There are many countries in Africa who are going to be having their own elections, right? Already this, this month, Equatorial Guinea is having a general election. In February next year, Nigeria is having a general election. When we come to March next year, Mali is having a referendum. Sudan Syria, and Sierra Leone in June and July. Zimbabwe is having an election next year and many other countries, right? Um, but now, why is this important to Africans and why should Africa care? The thing is that at the moment, if you're taking a look at the the lawmaking body uh, Congress, right? The Democrats have a majority, but their majority has cur- is currently has been raised then they've been on a 50-50 split and pres- uh, Vice President Kamala Harris has been the tie-breaking vote mm-hmm. um, in Congress. And as you can see in the previous administration with former President Donald Trump, certain policies towards Africa would have taken a slightly certain stance, if you will, and President Biden has his own agenda and has also just recently released his sub-Saharan Africa strategy. So what does this mean? If President Biden's political party, which is the Democratic Party, if they lose control of either the House, and in particular if they lose control of the Senate, that means that for the remainder of President Biden's term, the next two years, he will find it very difficult to complete his agenda, which would, you know, which may also include certain things pertaining to Africa. As we saw under President Trump, there were certain things like, for example, in Somalia, there was the withdrawal of the troops in Somalia, for example. President Trump himself did not visit Africa, for example. But we have seen um, Secretary Blinken come to Africa, and since the Russia-Ukraine war, we have seen an increase by threefold of senior, very high-ranking 
Biden administration officials who have been making trips to Africa. So I think that the domestic politics in the United States certainly does have an impact because as voting, if the Republicans gain control of either the House or the Senate, or in fact, if they win many of the state elections across the country, in the governorships, for example, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, or in New Hampshire, or in, in, in other places, Pennsylvania, for example, the world will be looking to see how they might be impacted. When we had COVID under President Donald Trump, he withdrew or wanted to withdraw from the WHO. He wanted to withdraw from many of the alliances like climate change and things of this nature. So it is important that Africa takes an interest in these things because it plays into what might that relationship look like between the United States um, and Africa. And Pearl, lastly, uh, let's talk about the diaspora in the United States, a large African community in different parts of the country. Could they make a difference? And are they uh, involved in this kind of thing, to your knowledge? So um, I'll explain that, for example, the African diaspora did not play a prominent role under President Donald Trump. Uh, However, since President Biden has come into office, part of his agenda is very inclusive of the African diaspora. Now, how you understand the African diaspora from an African perspective and how you understand that African diaspora from an African-American perspective sometimes are two different things because Mm -hmm. the African-Americans themselves also perceive themselves as part of that African diaspora. If you take a look at President Biden, he just released, as I mentioned, uh, his new Africa strategy and Secretary Blinken, as you know, was in Pretoria launching that with uh, Secretary uh, Dr. Neleidi Pandor. And as you know, in the second week of December, the White House has invited uh, Africa and they will be convening the U.S. Africa Leader Summit, uh, which I hope uh, I will be attending. But here are some of the things. Last week, I was at a meeting at the White House, and I can tell you that, for example, they convened, the National Security Council convened the Ransomware Summit. There were 36 countries invited. Of the 36 countries that were invited, three were from Africa, which was Kenya, South Africa, and Nigeria. So you can see that how the the U.S. administration and U.S. politics has been changing and shifting in how it engages with Africa is really becoming a fact. And part of the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit is going to have an African diaspora component. That was journalist and analyst Pearl Matibi in Washington talking to me about tomorrow's midterm elections from an African angle. For U.S. election news, check out voaafrica.com and voanews.com. Turn into your favorite VOA news programs. Somalia's military says it has repulsed an attack by al-Shabaab militants on a military base in the country's central Galagadud region. Mohamed Dasen reports from Mogadishu. The attack on the military base took place in the village of Ghaib in Somalia's central state of Galmudug. On Monday, local officials in the state told VOA over the phone that the attack started with a car bombing followed by two hours of fierce fighting between the army and al-Shabaab militants. Speaking to Somali government-run radio, military colonel Hassan Jami said the army inflicted heavy casualties on them. He says the militants attacked during the morning prayer and the village 
is now under army control. He says this was no skirmish and that the militants attacked with all their power. The attack comes a day after Somalia said it killed 200 Al-Shabaab militants over a four-day period. Residents who spoke to VOA said that they had loud explosions and reported casualties on both sides. Somali local media reported that at least 15 people were killed in the attack on the army camp in Galmuduk state. The camp is located 90 kilometers east of the state administrative capital of Dusamreb. The militants have increased their attacks since President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud took office in May and vowed an all-out war against Al-Shabaab. Experts believe that the group has increased its attacks because it feels its existence has been threatened. Mohammed Hussein Gas, director of the Mogadishu-based Rad Beast Research Institute, told via WhatsApp that Al-Shabaab is now facing the biggest resistance ever by public. Whenever Al-Shabaab feels its existence is threatened, it intensifies its attacks. This time, it is facing its biggest threat of a public uprising and offensive as the country and its population are determined to end the Al-Shabaab once for all. He said, however, that a multifaceted strategy by the army for liberating the country from Al-Shabaab needs collaboration and must be implemented in a way that does not hurt the struggling economy. Al-Shabaab has been fighting in the Horn of African nation, targeting Somali government officials and African Union peacekeepers since 2007, late last month, to win car bombing by Al-Shabaab in the capital took the lives of more than 100 people and wounded more than 300 others. Mohammed Daisane for VON News, Mogadishu. Rwanda says a military airplane from the Democratic Republic of Congo violated its airspace today. According to the French news agency AFP, Rwandan authorities say a Sukhoi 25 fighter jet from the DRC entered its territory at 11.20 a.m. and briefly touched down at Rubavu Airport in Western Province. The statement by the Rwandan government communications office said no military action was taken and the jet returned to the DRC, which acknowledged the incident. On Saturday, diplomats from both countries met in Angola to work on the implementation of a de-escalation plan reached in July. Kinshasa expelled the Rwandan ambassador last month for allegedly backing M23 rebels fighting in the eastern DRC, a claim that UN experts confirmed but Kigali denies. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Adrias Rigas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.
This is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM stations. 